Welcome to Seeking Alpha's Wall Street Breakfast, your daily source of market news and analysis. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Welcome to Seeking Alpha Editor's Roundtable, what moved markets this week, the week ending Friday, September 10th. 2021, a holiday-shortened week here in the U.S., and volumes were a little bit subdued. There wasn't all that much happening in markets. We're down for the week, for the most part, across risk assets. But there is still quite a bit for us to discuss. We had an ECB rate decision to start tapering. We had a JOLTS jobs report unemployment um, coming in, jobless claims setting a new post-pandemic low, and PPIs coming in a little bit ahead of forecasts. So let me introduce our panelists here in no particular order. I am joined by Brad Olison, the VP of News, Kim Kahn, Senior News Editor, Stephen Alfer, Managing Editor of Breaking News, and this week our special guest, Paul Bayaki. He is a senior investment strategy advisor at SSNC Alps Advisors. And Paul, I'd like to start with you. I know your expertise is in energy. Energy has had a bit of a hard time lately, down about almost 3% this week. And this after a strong start to the year where the outlook was improving for, for energy and, and oil. So there's now this lull and, and curious to hear what your thoughts are on this and your take on that situation? Well, I think there's quite a number of different dynamics at play here. I mean, if you go back to the fall when value started outperforming growth in earnest, that was certainly a tailwind for energy stocks. If you think about the Russell 1000 index as sort of a benchmark, and you look at the weighting of energy in that index, it's 3% or less. And you look at the Russell 1V, it has an overweight position of 250 basis points to 300 basis points in energy. And then you look at the Russell 1G, and it's basically 0% in energy. And so I think that value growth reversion that we had seen since the fall was helping energy stocks. And then, of course, the macroeconomic environment starting to improve also provided a tailwind for energy, at least in the first half of the year. And then as there was some concerns about the Delta variant spread and the impact on economic activity and end market demand, you started to see really a decrease or a decline in the relative performance of energy. And then you think about growth stocks and, and their profile. I mean, typically, these are companies whose cash flows are far out in the future. And if you're discounting those cash flows over a long period of time at a lower interest rate, that makes those companies more value, valuable just from a valuation perspective. And so since rates have sort of come down a little bit over the course of the past month and a half, that means that perhaps from a market participant perspective, those value stocks aren't necessarily as attractive relative to growth stocks as they might have been when interest rates were rising or at the very least expectations of increases in interest rates were increasing. Hmm. Very interesting. All right. Uh, Kim, let's uh, kick it over to you for the big picture of what moved markets uh, th this week on the economic front. I mean, it, it's not a particularly uh, big down week, but it is a down week, which is a kind of rare thing. S&P is looking at it, its worst um, weekly performance since June. Um, could be down, as, a, you know, as we're looking right now, could be down five sessions in a row. And still on track for its first down month since January. 
you know, those are getting investors' attention. And um, on the econ side, you know, things were pretty choppy with the bond market. Um, you had big drop yesterday after a strong demand for a 30-year auction. And now rates are, are, are going up, uh, yields are going up pretty sharply, kind of a delayed reaction to, the, you know, it didn't start right away, but a little later, people caught up on the hot PPI number. Um, you're at 8%, over 8% on the year-over-year PPI for the you know, first time in the series history. So we've seen a lot of bouncing around there. Interesting. Yeah. And a lot of this is, of course, moving up into the uh, the Fed's decision on September 22nd. And they're likely going to keep interest rates where they are, but the speculation is on tapering of bond purchases. And I wanted to bring Paul back in real quick. Paul, uh, you mentioned rates. How much does that equation affect energy prices? And if they if the Fed does decide to taper, decide to taper do you see that as something that would have a, a negative effect on energy markets or not so much? Well, I think the the implication as as investors think about it is that if rates rise as a result of tapering, then that's net negative for the markets because we've been sort of addicted to this low rate environment. And it is so much of what has been fueling the market rally so far this year and over the course of the past few years. But I think the reality is, is that you have to look at all of these things within the context of the macroeconomic backdrop. And as we were talking about before the call, PPI rose once again. I think that's nine straight months of increases in PPI. We are very much in an inflationary environment, transitory or otherwise. And historically, commodities have done well in inflationary environments. And that's partly because of the nature of inflation. And if we do see sustained inflation, that should, in theory, be beneficial for commodities, whether it's industrial metals, whether it's energy prices. And so we still have, at least from a supply and demand dynamic globally, some constraints on the supply side that put a floor at the very least under crude oil prices currently. And we've seen that in terms of energy prices. We've seen a sort of range bound trade for WTI between 60 and $75 a barrel. We, we got the news today of the conversation between President Biden and the Chinese that has at least put a, a bid on energy today. And that is reflective of better economic cooperation globally and perhaps a less strained global economic environment, which is net positive for for energy in theory, at least based on what the tape is saying today. So I don't know that rising interest rates or tapering or sort of a knock-on effect of tapering and spilling into rising interest rates are necessarily net negative for commodities prices and specifically energy. I think that there's so many macroeconomic dynamics at work as it relates to energy that it's important that investors sort of think through all of those before trying to attribute any one dynamic to the action there. Yeah, fair points. Okay, let's move on to another participant, uh, Brad Olison, to give us a lay of land in terms of the winners and losers this week. Right, so I think more to, to what Paul was was indicating, there all those supply constraints and other aspects of the macro environment are, are bleeding through to single stock equities. And I'll, I'll get to some of those in, in just a minute. Um, I, I think you, you can't ignore this broader theme that we're, we're, we're seeing on the, on the macro side. Um, on the one hand, and for me, this was a case of diverging and counterintuitive themes um, in the stock market. And on the one hand, you did see weakness, as, as Kim indicated, a, a rarity, I guess, in the S&P where the pain trade is higher. Um, so on one hand, you saw that risk off week as we are a little bit lower. But if you look 
internally. Uh, some of the bigger risk off assets were among the biggest underperformers this week. So you kind of have those competing narratives there, even in the 10 year yield where we saw the 10 year yield pop after the payrolls on Friday, that kind of came back this week and more of a sign of risk off. You saw that confirmed by some of the beige book data uh, as well from the Fed. This is some of the more recent information that we have from the central bank that indicated the economic growth has downshifted slightly um, from July through to August. And they attribute that to most of the dining out and leisure spaces. Um, add to that Morgan Stanley's cross asset team, which under uh, which which downgraded U.S. equities to underweight this week, partially attributed to to much of what Paul was indicating earlier. With you have a little bit of a rising rate environment, a downshifting in growth, which could weigh on on certain growth equities at least. Um, nothing with regards to, to the equity or commodities space. Um, and with regards to the individual stocks and the complexities there, we on, on one hand, we saw Moderna as the top performer on the S&P. Usually that's a, a, a Delta variant or, or COVID play. But then on the other hand, you saw another winner in, and on the other hand, you had Royal Caribbean, uh, which bounced um, after a, a, a tough week last week. And Royal Caribbean usually will falter when you have a, a strong COVID uh, theme on the week for for equities. So a little bit of a, a counterintuitive move there in some of these single stock equities. And on the loser side, Kroger, usually a, a beneficiary of some of this COVID um, purchasing, you know, the, the grocery store, they're down on the week, uh, mostly because the results where they saw margins getting hit. This is more to what Paul was indicating was some of the supply constraints. Pulte Home was also another big loser uh, this week. They were a huge beneficiary of the housing boom and, and the difficulty in finding in, in finding supply in the housing market. They pointed again to some of their supply constraints um, as impacting some of their results. So it's clear that you no longer have this easy uh, either work from home basket or not work from home basket, investors are really going to have to look a little bit more carefully into some of these single stock equities to determine whether the risk reward is really there at certain levels, um, as indicated, just by looking at some of the, the winners and losers in, in, in this week alone. Hmm. All right. Uh, Stephen Alfer sitting there patiently from his perch in Philadelphia. What were you watching this week? The underperformance of the small caps continued as bad a week as the S&P had and yeah, it's down five days in a row, but it's still not down very much. Uh, the small caps, uh, as evidenced by the Russell 2000, underperformed is under, underperformed by about 200 basis points over that five-day period. Uh, over about the last three months, it's underperformed by about 900 basis points. The last six months, 1,700 basis points. So the easy explanation is, well, if we're going to go down, we're returning to kind of this COVID economy. Right, it's it's the big caps where the, who are going to make the money and, and and where the dollars are going to go. Maybe maybe another explanation, and I haven't looked looked into this enough to know, but maybe small caps, you know, if, if inflation is going to be a lot stickier than we thought, uh, as evidenced by the PPI this morning, maybe maybe it's small caps whose margins are going to take a hit more than more than the big caps. Maybe they they just have less room. Um, maybe commodity prices are a higher percentage of their revenues than than a than a big cap company. Uh, so maybe maybe what the small cap underperformance is telling us is not that we're going back to a COVID economy, but that, that inflation is gonna uh, be higher and, and stick around uh, for longer than expected. Yeah, don't forget the employment picture too. Small caps maybe have a harder time recruiting and paying for uh, staff. Um, as we've seen, you know, wages are, are, are up across the board. There's an interesting metric in the JOLTS report called the quits 
metric or something. And, and it shows the number of people who have quit each month. And that's been increasing uh, throughout the summer. Um, all right, let's move on to the next segment of the show where we discuss our favorite stories, uh, seeking alpha articles and can be, can be things in the news, sometimes even tweets. One thing that I think was was most interesting in terms of a social experiment was what, what was happening down in El Salvador, where they were implementing Bitcoin as a form of legal tender and sort of the blowback that we saw there in terms of some protests, not necessarily large scale protests, but some of the growing pains that they're experiencing and implementing this new digital currency as a way for people to perhaps send money abroad in a more efficient way relative to money orders and the existing ways that they do. And ultimately that was coincidental with a big sell-off in the price of Bitcoin, which is the currency that they're going to be implementing. And so to me, that was just interesting because we think a lot about equity markets. We think a lot about fixed income markets and the implications of macroeconomic dynamics on all of these things. But we often forget just how challenging it can be to operate in certain economies around the world and certain countries are trying new things to improve that experience. And whether or not this Bitcoin mandate in El Salvador actually works is one thing, but I think at a high level, it's interesting just in terms of the evolution of technology, mm. and the, the way monetary policy and, and economics are being deployed around the world. Hmm. That's interesting. Interesting that you, that you are watching that story. Normally, uh, Stephen is the guy who brings cryptos into the conversation. And Sorry to take your... Yeah, I was line. not expecting you to do so, but that's a very interesting point. Very interesting story. Ken, what about you? Well, I, I liked one of these, um, you know, can they really do that stories, which was uh, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan oh. re releasing um, his um, portfolio information of all the trades he'd made. He, in, last year, he traded millions of dollars worth of, uh, of single stocks. And he was in all the mega caps, except for Microsoft. Um, he's in you know, all the ones that, that benefit from a lower rate environment. And, you know, it's, it's not against the rules. It's not unprecedented in the Fed. It's almost a tradition in the Dallas Fed. If you look at Richard Fisher and how much he traded and, you know, it's Kaplan's, as, you know, an ex Goldman guy who obviously thinks that having these kind of stocks isn't, isn't really a big deal. Is not kind of real trading? Just holding these longs, but everybody else is, he was, was, gave a kind of like, you know, double take and said, well, you know, he's, you know, setting monetary policy and, and, and also investing in these issues that are, that are going to that are going to benefit. And you know, ironically, he's, he's he's one of the more hawkish guys. He wants to start tapering as soon as possible, which would probably hit a lot of the stocks he holds. But now it's all changed, and they're all going to go into either cash or or, or passive funds for um, FONC members. But then I think the next big question is Kaplan gets asked is, well, okay, you liquidated. Did you go all cash or did you go into the S&P? And that's going to be a tough one for him to answer. Yeah, that was an interesting story too. I mean, and they've now, to their credit, they have agreed to divest everything by the end of the month, I think. But it does beg the question why the Fed is allowed to do this when on Wall Street, just about every job, you're not allowed to trade individual securities from a personal account. Uh, Stephen, uh, I'm sorry, Brad, first, what about, what about your favorite story, Brad? Sure, I guess just to continue my theme of kind of this counterintuitive nature of this undercurrent here, I just looked at AMC. Um, on one hand, we're seeing a 
bunch of mandates rolled out. You saw some from the administration. You're seeing some from this from the individual states. Um, little mini lockdowns here and there. But AMC saw uh, a huge move this week on the back of a strong box office. So um, maybe it's a case of, of of two Americas where you know you have some areas that are being locked down and others are doing a lot lot better. Um, that would seem to indicate or at least explain why you're seeing some outperformance and underperformance in some names that don't make a whole lot of sense. Um, but AMC did uh, rally pretty strongly off the back of a strong box office this week. I think it's the second week in a row where they've had uh, pretty strong results. I also wanted to bring AMC in the mix in the fact that it was also featured in one of our weekend items when Quants and Wall Street disagree. Um, also kind of reaffirms this diverging narrative. Um, one of our, our, our editors here, Jason Haycock, looked at the stocks that featured the biggest discrepancy between Wall Street sentiment and our own quant rating system here at Seeking Alpha and, and where those were rated. And AMC, no surprise as a meme name, um, is, is featured among those in which those two competing uh, schools of thought um, tend to, to, to agree. So um, definitely those are the two main stories I, I think you should all check out. Um, and that's it for me. All right, Stephen. Well, since Paul's here, I'll do an uh, oil-related story. It's my favorite. And Might as well. He did crypto, so go ahead. Right, sure. And uh, that's Harvard uh, this morning announcing that they've divested from nearly all of their fossil fuel investments. And this goes back to last week, uh, where nobody seems to like traditional energy plays anymore, uh, yet it's been a super performer this year from a low base. Uh, I'm reminded of the quote, the uh, the best returns are in assets where those who know it best love it least, right? And so we talked about how the managements at places like Exxon and BP, they're not even interested in investing in oil anymore. Uh, the industry is seemingly being starved of capital. And I'm wondering if we can think longer term, Paul, do you think that you know, may, might be a good thing for traditional oil, uh, traditional, traditional energy investments? Well, I think... When you look at midstream, which is a segment that I focus on, so pipeline companies, storage companies, liquefaction companies, processing companies, the reality is is that their businesses are are really relevant right now in, in the current state of our economy in the sense that they help get natural gas production domestically to consumption. They help get crude oil production domestically to consumption. But they're also, in theory, relevant to a transition because if we're going to mandate more and subsidize more electric vehicles and electrify our economy, we're going to need more electricity and wind and solar 10%, 11%, despite growing pretty aggressively. And so the the gap is likely to be filled by natural gas. And, and we're seeing it in some ways. Natural gas prices at $5, which is an all-time seasonal high, or at least a seasonal high that we haven't seen since 2008. And that's reflective of some of the constraints here in terms of capital and in terms of supply and demand. But even without thinking about the here and now or even a transition, I mean, infrastructure companies are likely to play a role in hydrogen markets, carbon capture markets, and, and carbon sequestration. And so in some ways, what Exxon is doing and what midstream companies are doing is evolving and adapting to that changing landscape of, of capital opportunities and, and positioning themselves as quote unquote energy companies to participate in these emergent segments of, of energy. Now, you know, you think about the infrastructure bill, we're going to spend $5 billion in grants to demonstration projects for hydrogen. We're going to spend $5 billion in grants and carbon capture demonstration projects. I mean, 
it's a ways off before these things are applied at scale in an economical way. And so that's a future that's perhaps farther out in some ways than many people anticipate. To sort of tie that back into your question, Stephen, I think the reality is, is that in the meantime, there's a lot of economic relevance to traditional energy companies that's maybe being underestimated. And whether or not that's a product of social changes in investor philosophy, ESG and the like, I think remains to be seen. But I, I do wholeheartedly believe that when you think about valuation, you think about fundamentals in the energy space, these companies have gone to great lengths to to improve upon their fundamental foundations. And when you pair that with valuations, it makes for a, a sector of the economy that's unique in that way. Good stuff. I think that's a nice way for us to close this week. A very interesting discussion. Thank you especially to Paul as the guest to, to come on and take, take time to share his views here with us. Um, remember that you can watch this video every week by about four o'clock on Friday afternoon at the website seekingalpha.com slash videos slash alpha dash talks. With that, we thank you for watching and listening and look forward to speaking to you again next week. That concludes today's Wall Street Breakfast. Thank you for listening. For the best investment analysis and news on the web, go to SeekingAlpha.com. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can sign up for our other podcasts, Behind the Idea, Essay for FAs, Let's Talk ETFs, the Cannabis Investing Podcast, and Marketplace Roundtable on those platforms as well. Have a great day.